I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 16. The seven vials. Last week was our calm before the storm. We considered this hymn of praise unto the Lord. The people, the hundred forty-four thousand, we saw in verse uh, chapter fourteen. In chapter fifteen, John sees another sign in the heavens. He sees them that had gotten victory over the beast and over the image and over the mark of his name, standing on the sea of glass and of fire, singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. While this is happening in the heavens, we also see these angels coming out of the temple with vials which are given to them, the vials containing the wrath of God to be poured out on the earth. This week we get no such rest uh, as we dig into these seven vials themselves. Throughout the course of the study, we've seen the judgment of God fall upon the world within what we presume to be the 70th week of Daniel. Remember, we are making some assumptions here. One of the assumptions is that we are looking at two separate three-and-a-half-year blocks, two separate 42-month blocks, two separate 1,260-day blocks of time. We never do see the time period in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ expand beyond 42 months. Uh, so there are those that believe that everything's happening in, in this time period within 42 months span. That seems unlikely when we compare it to Daniel, seems unlikely when we compare it to uh, Ezekiel, seems unlikely when we compare it to the various other um, passages. But as we have walked through, we've seen three particular sets of what we would regard as judgments. The first set, the seven seals being broken... And you see the line there in this graphic between the seventh seal being broken and the trumpets. Contained within the seventh seal are the seven trumpet judgments. And then contained within the final trumpet sound are the seven vile judgments. We would see them um, as, as kind of like those Russian nesting dolls, right? You open the one and there's another doll inside and you open that one. So each one is a self-contained unit, but also within it is the, the rest of them are contained as they get larger. Except we're going smaller here, right? We open the seals and when you open the, the seventh seal inside are the trumpet judgments. And when you open the seventh judgment inside are the vile judgments. And that's kind of how we understand this to be. So those seals are broken on this scroll that has writing on both sides within and without and with each one of those seals being broken something is happening upon the earth uh, first the four horsemen which we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse right and then after that the various other um, events and then we give way to the trumpets and as the trumpets sound these particular judgments are significantly more severe in nature um, within the scope of the trumpet judgments things get significantly more supernatural as well the bottomless pit is opened, demonic hordes come out, the, the angel of the bottomless pit uh, is leading those um, out of the bottomless pit also comes this beast. We have found the beast of the bottomless pit. Some believe that is the angel of the bottomless pit. Uh, uh, it seems likely that it is more likely to be um, revealing some element of the, the demonic compulsion behind Antichrist himself, which might lead us to believe that this is happening around the midpoint of the tribulation. All of these things that we have been studying for the past several weeks 
uh, um, that, that we've covered the signs beginning in chapter 12 have been within the scope of the seventh of those trumpet judgments, if you recall. So we talked about John seeing the woman in heaven, right? And the dragon that had seven heads and ten horns and the beast that had seven heads and ten horns and the second beast um, that was speaking words of blasphemy that animated uh, the image of the first beast and that, that caused the people on the earth to take the mark of his name and seeing the 144,000 in heaven and then uh, uh, the, the, the song of rejoicing last week, all of that seems to be in some way, shape, or form within the scope of the seventh trumpet and in preparation for the, the final vile judgments. Also within the scope of that time were the, the two witnesses, right? And the wonder of the two witnesses who were destroyed at 42 months. So we've seen all of these things. And it, it's crescendoing now with the vile judgments the end of which will correspond quite closely with the event that we often call Armageddon, with the event of the Lord's second coming. Again, the timetable on these things is somewhat muddied. Are the seven vile judgments going to be opened within a span of a very short period of time associated directly with the Lord's coming? Or are they going to be spread out over a longer period of time throughout the last three and a half years? Uh, are the trumpet judgments kind of half and half? And we've talked about some of the timing elements. Much of that is, is up in the air and certainly left that way by the Lord. Many theories out there, some have good merit, some don't have much merit at all. But this hymn that we learned last week is, is, is a hymn of glory to God preparing us for the final judgments that will be unleashed. And that's what we read about today. Beginning in chapter 16, verse 1, the Bible says this, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of, of the wrath of God upon the earth. So the time has come for the final judgments upon the earth. And a voice from heaven says, Go your ways and do what you're going to do. In other literature, you'll read these judgments being called not the vile judgments, but the bold judgments. That's a fine translation. The word translated vile here speaks of a broad and a shallow bowl in the Greek. When we think of a vile, uh, it's not characteristically what we think of. We often think of a vile as kind of some long and slender um, container conjures up that image of something that may hold a small bit of fluid or, or a small bit of powder or whatever it might be. Um, vile is not necessarily an incorrect translation as it relates to different possible vile types, um, but many people will call it bold judgments for that reason. Contained within these vials, there's a final expression of God's wrath, and, and we see this, these coming very quickly in the text, and that they come very quickly in the text might actually be an indicator to us of how these things play out on earth. Recall that as we've walked through, the seal judgments happen very quickly too. One verse, maybe two verses per judgment, and then the trumpet judgments got long. Right? There was a great amount of time, uh, uh, of a lot of verses that seemed to be devoted to them. And then again with the vile judgments, they're going to be very quick in succession 
linguistically on, on page, will that correspond to how they play out on the earth? Will the seal judgments be opened very quickly over the course of days or weeks or, or maybe just a few, a few short months? And then the trumpet judgments will happen spread out over a course perhaps of several years. And then the vile judgments again will be very quick days, weeks or months, possibly. Perhaps that is what the language of the text is intending to do. Help us understand that. Help us get a, a feel for timing. Perhaps not. We don't really know and the Lord hasn't seen fit to tell us. But we read in verse 2, the first of these. The Bible says, The first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. So the first vial is poured out upon the earth. And take note of what the vials are being poured out upon, because there are several different different objects of the vials being poured out throughout the course of these seven vials. So this one is poured out upon the earth, and the Bible says um, that there was a terrible sore, there were terrible sores that came upon the men, and only those that had taken the mark of the beast. Now, this is not the first time we've seen a distinction made between those upon whom judgment falls in the text, but it is the first time the mark of the beast is mentioned. So we, we uh, saw back in Revelation 9 at the sounding of the fifth trumpet, the bottomless pit was opened and there was this divine locust, recall, that came out of the bottomless pit. It was some sort of spiritual um, locust that came out and, and, and uh, was, was very unique in description. This locust tormented men, and Revelation chapter 9, verse 4 says, it tormented only those men that had not the seal of God on their forehead. So the first time in Revelation 9, 4 that we see a separation made between the followers of Christ and non-followers of Christ, it does not emphasize those that, uh, the, the non-followers. It emphasizes that, it didn't, that the locust did not torment those who had the seal of God. Notice this time the change in perspective. This time, the torment falls upon those who have taken the mark of the beast. And so now we have a confirmation, a confirmation that we would presume was not in effect in Revelation 9 at the fifth trumpet. In Revelation 9 at the fifth trumpet, we might presume that, that men had not yet had that choice put upon them. Do I take the mark? Do I not take the mark? And so the believer was preserved it was a judgment upon the world in general in Revelation chapter 9 at the fifth trumpet for all those that had not accepted, but that judgment could perhaps still inspire people to accept Christ. Whereas at this point, we know as we've studied the mark of the beast, these folks are confirmed. They have made their choice. And so now this is a judgment of God upon those who have made their choice and they have chosen the beast. They have chosen the mark of his name. They have chosen Satan. We move quickly to the next vial in verse 3. The Bible says, The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. So the second vial is poured out upon the sea, and we would certainly not expect this at various times, of course. We've seen the sea and the land perhaps be metaphorical, right? And I've talked about that, and I've always left it as a perhaps but I've talked about it enough that you know kind of where I stand on that. I do like the metaphor. I like the comparison. This would be very literal. And we know that there's literal here because of the context within which we see the things in the sea dying. And the Bible says uh, a couple of things. First, um, take note that this is a comparison, not a transformation. The text doesn't say that the sea became blood. 
The text says but that the sea became as blood, and not just as any sort of blood, but as the blood of a dead man. This forms a strong distinction between the plague that, that we see here and the plague of the second trumpet. When the second trumpet sounded, the Bible says a great burning mountain fell into the sea and one third of the sea became blood. Not became as blood, but became blood. We're actually going to see in, in the, the following vials that, again, the freshwater sources will become blood. The fact that there is a distinguishment made here between as blood in this and becoming blood in the second trumpet and becoming blood in a later vial show us that there is a distinction to be made here. And notice it doesn't just say as blood, but it says as the blood of a dead man. So when a person dies within something like 10 minutes, the blood begins to coagulate and the blood separates from the yellowish serum. Likely the image thus is a thickening coagulation of the seas. What that means, we don't really know. What is it that's causing the seas to coagulate and thicken in this manner? We do not know. Perhaps um, uh, something natural, such as uh, a great deal of mud, uh, uh, an upturning of the earth, um, or maybe something uh, entirely supernatural. We do not know. But whatever it is, it is going to thicken into a perhaps a coagulated consistency that will cause everything within the sea, every living thing within the sea, to die. They simply will not be able to live. So we're moving very quickly through these. One verse per vial. And that's what we see as we continue in verse 4. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. Do you see the distinction? They became, it became as the blood of a dead man in verse two or verse 3. And here, it, the, the freshwater sources became blood. Once again, we see the judgment that's very similar to what we've seen before. We mentioned the great mountain that fell into the sea in the trumpet judgments, and a third of the waters became blood. And now we have, in the second vial judgment, the rest of the waters of the earth becoming as blood, as the blood of a dead man. Here we see the third angel pouring out his vial. The rivers and the fountains of water become blood. Back in the third trumpet... There was a star, recall, that fell to the earth. Right after the great burning mountain fell into the sea, there was a star that fell, and that star was named Wormwood. The fact that it had a name and the fact that we see stars oftentimes corresponding to angelic beings would lend us to the possible scenario or the possible interpretation that this was actually an, an angelic being that came down to earth. And this star named Wormwood touched one-third part of the fresh water sources, and those fresh water sources became bitter, if you recall. And the Bible says that many people died due to the taint, due to the poison, the bitterness of those fresh water sources. So do you see what we're seeing here? In the trumpet judgments, a third of certain things were touched. And now in the vile judgments, there's a fullness to the wrath, right? It goes from one third to everything. One third of the, the seas become blood. Now all of the seas become as the blood of a dead man. One third of the freshwater sources are poisoned. And now all of the freshwater sources become blood. And at this point, John pauses and he listens to the angel which poured out the third vial upon the waters sing a praise to the Lord. And we get that praise in verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. 
For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. For they are worthy. So the angel praises the everlasting God, and he calls him the same yesterday, today, and forever. That which art, that's today. Which was, that's yesterday. Which shall be, that's forever, right? He's the God of yesterday, today, and forever. He's always the same. And the angel says, you are just. You are righteous. You, you are worthy to do this. This is a worthy judgment. And we find this particular judgment uh, within it an ironic justice poured out upon the earth for generations. We're going to talk about this when we get to Mystery Babylon. We're going to talk about Mystery Babylon for the next several weeks, at least the next three. Um, And as we talk about Mystery Babylon, Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, the source and the compulsion of those upon the earth to slay the prophets and the saints. And as we consider that, we recognize that going all the way back to when Cain killed Abel, that was a, a template, if you will, for what has happened in every generation since, which is the shedding of the blood of the, uh, of the saints. And for what reason has the blood of those faithful to God been shed in every age and in every generation? Not because the followers of God have done wrong, but rather because the deeds of the murderers are evil. They seek to cover the shame of their sin by destroying those who are righteous, those whose lives stand in such dramatic and drastic contradiction to the testimony of their own lives. And so the Bible tells us why Cain killed Abel, because Abel's deeds were righteous and Cain's were evil. So the angel says that these upon the earth are worthy to be forced to drink blood as they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets for generations now, it is coming back upon them. A righteous, if not ironic, judgment. To this declaration of the Lord's worth, another angel responds in verse 7. The Bible says, I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are their judgments, are thy judgments. So the angel pours out this, this vial of wrath upon the earth. All of the freshwater sources become as blood. People are thus having to drink blood. Now, the other one was bitter. It was poisonous. People died. In this case, we would presume not necessarily that that is the case. But the people are drinking this blood. The angel says, this is a, this is a, a worthy judgment for the blood of the saints. And, and there's an angel that calls out from the altar. Recall that, that, that there, there's a temple in heaven. No one's allowed to go in the temple at this point in time, right? We read about that last week, how because of the glory of the Lord, the whole temple filled with smoke, and no one is able to enter the temple until such time as all of the judgments of God are, are, are meted out, all of the vials are poured out, and yet there's an angel standing by the altar, the altar, of course, being the place where the prayers of the saints would lift up unto the Lord, saying, yes, this is worthy, and all of the Lord's judgments are worthy. All of the Lord's judgments are worthy. They are righteous. God has been silent for many generations in a sense, in silent grief, while his servants have been scorned and beaten and killed for his name, all the way back to Abel. But God is silent no more. This is the time where God's silence gives way to the day of reckoning. The fourth vial begins in verses 8 and 9. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. So we've had him poured out upon the earth. We've had him poured out upon the waters. Now upon the sun. 
And the and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. So the fourth angel pours out his vial upon the sun. And the temperature of the sun is elevated. The angel has, is given the power to scorch men with fire, the Bible says. If we want to speak about man-made global warming, this is probably about the closest we can get to it. That man, for his sin and for his evil and for his, his, his wickedness, has now brought upon him the wrath of God, and God in his righteousness has chosen as one of these judgments, the fourth of seven of these final judgments, to bring upon the earth this terrible heat, scorching the men of the earth. And as the men of the earth are reeling under the scorching heat of the sun, they take time to expend the energy not to fall upon their knees in repentance, but rather they take time to expend the energy to blaspheme the name of the God who, who is sending this judgment, right? This is another reminder here of what's happening. What's happening is not innocent people who did not know better being caught in the crossfires of God's anger. This is a world that has rejected the Lord. This is those who have the mark of the beast shaking their fist at God because they have made their choice. So the spirit of the world at this time is, is, is of this sort. Lost under the deceptions of its own pride and rebellion, they blaspheme God as the sun is brought to these scorching levels. Fifth, in verses 10 and 11, the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the sea, the seat of the beast, excuse me, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and, the bla and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. So as the fifth angel pours out his vial, the Bible says that he pours it out upon the seat of the beast. This is one that afflicts particularly the kingdom of the beast. We will, over the next coming weeks, speculate more about this, perhaps. The center of the kingdom of the beast is perhaps a couple of different places. Perhaps the center of the kingdom of the beast is Babylon, this mystery Babylon, this city Babylon. But it seems unlikely, and that being because Babylon is torn down. The, the Babylon is, is the whore that rides the beast, right? And yet Babylon is torn down by the kings that have loyalty to the beast. It is burned and destroyed by the ten kings, by the ten horns that are loyal to the beast. We'll talk about that more next week and um, then we'll have to see how those three messages are going to play out. I'm going to preach one week of Revelation 17, one week of Revelation 18, and then one week to talk a little bit about identity that transcends it. I'm not sure what order that all is going to go in yet. But we'll get there. We'll get to all of these things. But we're not sure where the seat of the beast is. We'll talk about it more. more. It could be Babylon, mystery Babylon. It could also be Jerusalem as he placed himself, remember, on the temple. Uh, on the throne in the temple of the Holy of Holies there at the abomination of desolation. It may be that he has uh, chosen that to be the place of his seat. We do not know for sure what that is just yet. We'll speculate more. But it is within, upon the seat of the beast, his capital as it were, and his kingdom that darkness falls. And the Bible says that they gnawed their tongues for pain. Because of their pains and their sores, they blaspheme the God of heaven. Whether this is the pain of darkness 
There is a, a kind of a pain that comes with absolutely no light that can drive a man insane if there's no light at all. Or whether this is, as the Bible says here at the end of verse 11, the sores that they're still being inflicted upon from the first of the um, several vile judgments that is still afflicting them. And now they're in darkness and they're in pain and they're, they're gnawing their tongues, the idea that there's so much pain that they just have to clench their teeth, but it's grinding their teeth. And so they're pu- putting their tongue there and gnawing on their tongue is something to gnaw on because of the pain that they're in, in right now and just a terrible, terrible image of this circumstance. What would the kingdom of the beast be? It's interesting as we've talked about this, Um, We talk about a one-world system, a one-world government, but depending on how we interpret various things, including this passage, how we interpret Gog of Magog and and Ezekiel, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and I know you you heard a little bit from Brother Hanson when he was here uh, the week I was gone. As we consider all of these different identities and what is what, um, there is a question mark as to how far the actual kingdom of the beast extends as well. We would understand most likely that Jerusalem is a part of it because of the abomination of desolation could perhaps be um, up to Rome and down to Egypt. It could be uh, all of Western Europe. We're just not quite sure the extent of that. But we do know this, that there are other kings out there. There are these ten horns, these ten kings that are loyal to the beast. But there are some other kings out there that though perhaps they are a part of this one world system, they have likely not fully invested all of their confidence in the beast. They were most likely all fully invested in Babylon. And Babylon, of course, is torn down by those loyal to the beast. Read Revelation 17, you'll find that. And so perhaps when Babylon is torn down and destroyed, there becomes this antipathy between the beast and his kingdom and perhaps the kings of the east and the king of the north, depending on how we interpret various things. And when they are gathered, as we'll see at the end of this, to Megiddo, to the valley of Jezreel, It is very possible that they are gathered there not as a bunch of friends, but as armies that are going to contend one with another before the Lord comes and um, they all turn against the Lord as he returns. So lots of different scenarios. If none of this is, if, if you're familiar with the text, then maybe a few tumblers are falling into place. If you're not familiar with the text, then all of this is going to come back up over the next few weeks. Verse 12, the sixth vial. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So here we have it, the kings of the east. The Euphrates is the lifeblood, has been for many years, of this particular region. Along with the Tigris River, this region has characteristically been known as the Fertile Crescent, it is the fertile area within an area that is otherwise quite, um, quite infertile, a lot of desert, barren desert. The region is enlivened by the life that the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates supply. So the angel pours out his vial specifically upon the Euphrates, the Bible says, and the waters of the Euphrates dry up. And this prepares a way for the kings of the east to easily pass through to get to the valley of Jezreel, to get to the place, to to the hill or the mountain of Megiddo. And we'll come back to that a little bit later in our text today and, and then a little bit later in Revelation 19 as we talk more about Armageddon. To this end, we realize that we are coming very, very, very close 
to the coming of Jesus Christ. The river's dried up. The kings are now assembling at this final place, this final staging ground for the Lord to fight against them. And this becomes apparent as well as we continue in the context of the sixth vial in verses 13 and 14. The Bible says, And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So here we have that great day of the Lord. And remember when we were way back at the beginning and we were talking about the controversy surrounding different, um, different times when the, when the rapture might happen and, and, and how it all plays out. And we talked about how the day of the Lord is, can be multiple things. The day of the Lord can be a singular event and also be a broader time period. Well, we see here as of Revelation 16 that the day of the Lord proper has not yet taken place. That the day of the Lord proper is not yet come to pass at the end of the sixth vial. But we know that various elements of what we've studied going all the way back to the the sixth seal are a part of the prophecies of the day of the Lord in Joel, right? So once again, we see this, this proof, that these little snippets of evidence that, that lend us to this understanding that the day of the Lord can be both a broader event as well as a singular time within that broader event. In the same way that I can say, I went to the, par- I went to the parade today, but the parade was one hour of a four-hour event, right? We went to the parade and then there's the parade proper that takes place. And, and that same idea uh, and we, we see that, that concept bubble up here again. Now, what about these unclean spirits? What we, are, what we are and are not seeing here. We are not seeing, if I can say it this way, the spirits that empowered Antichrist and the beast coming out of them. And we know that because the spirit comes out of the dragon as well. And the dragon is Satan, right? You don't have a devil that's empowering Satan. Satan is uh, the devil, a devil, right? So what John is seeing here is a lying spirit that goes forth that is directed from Satan and Antichrist and the false prophet. And notice here, for the first time, we actually see this label, the false prophet, put on that second beast. And so these false spirits, these devils, come out working miracles. They come out. Uh, the, the, the idea is that the miracles that Satan is empowering the false prophet and the beast to do is reaching around the world and the world is being deceived and being compelled to gather themselves together. As I've mentioned already, the question is, are they gathering themselves together knowing the end is near specifically to resist God? Or are they gathering themselves together in some nature of conflict against one another? And then when the Lord appears, they all turn together against the Lord. The enemy of my enemy is, is, is my friend type idea. We don't fully know, and we'll talk about evidence for one or the other again over the next several weeks as we walk through these things. But the Lord uses these evil spirits to draw the kings. So the evil spirits are desirous to draw the kings of the world to this single place. And the evil spirits know why. Even if the the kings of the earth don't know why, the evil spirits are drawing them together to have the full weight of the world in opposition to God. For whatever, whatever carnal motivation there might be on the earth, the spirits, uh, the, the devils, Satan himself, Antichrist, the false prophet, they want the world to come together so that there may be maximum firepower, if I may use that word, against the Lord. 
In verse 15, we transition to a very important statement. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This verse reminds us when we talk about the Lord's coming as a thief that his context carries all the way into Revelation 16, carries all the way till the day of the Lord proper. We often use this verse to describe the rapture, and rightfully so. We've talked about that, that that the Lord's coming as a thief is rightfully so, but don't let that muddy the waters of the fact that even though there have been all of these signs and wonders, yet the Lord's coming is still going to be a shock to many in the world. Yet what he is about to do is going to be, uh, not necessarily in terms of, oh, I didn't think he was going to come, but the manner in which he comes, the, the judgment that is about to befall them, this is going to still be a, a very um, shocking event. Our studies in dual fulfillment, the nature of prophecy, do not contradict this point. As we see that the world is not ready, the world is blind to the dangers which they face, the world is blind to the power of God to judge them. And to this end, the Bible says, Blessed are they, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. I believe this is speaking more to us than it is to the people in that day. I believe it's a reminder as we sit under the weight of these judgments that we need to be watching, that we need to be wary, that we need to be ready, that we need to keep our garments pure, lest we be exposed as being unready on the day that the Lord arrives. And this is the end. We certainly have several other things to wrap up, but we've come to the end of the great human rebellion, which to this point in history has lasted 6,000 years or so. The wise man in every generation is the man who understands that the Lord will return. He is prepared so that he may stand boldly in the day of judgment rather than have his shame exposed. The text continues in verse 16. The Bible says, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. The Euphrates dries up. The kings of the east join the rest of the kingdoms of this world in the place which in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. The Hebrew word, Armageddon, literally means the hill or the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is a city on the edge of the valley of Jezreel. It is not in and of itself the valley. It is a city on the edge of the valley. We read here that this is where God will gather the kings of the earth with their armies. And again, we aren't going to dwell upon it all today in its fullness because we still have one more passage of Scripture pertaining to Jesus' return. Revelation 19 will dwell on Armageddon then. But we have already read about what might be a description of what will happen in this time. Recall back in chapter 14, the sickle that was sent into the earth to harvest the unbelievers of the earth, and then to throw them into the winepress of God's wrath. And the Bible says that as God harvested the earth, so the sickle harvests the people of the earth and throws them into the winepress of God's wrath, that the press, wine press, that the blood would reach up to the horse's bridle 1,600 furlongs long, which is about 180 square miles. Now, many people believe, as we've said before, that that is uh, metaphorical, 
that there's that this is impossible, all of these things, uh, whatever, that's fine. It is or it is not. Either way, we, we know what the Bible's trying to say. I will mention, however, as I mentioned last time, that the Valley of Jezreel is about 145 square miles. So you add to that the overflow, perhaps down through the Jordan Valley, uh, as as the you know the, the topography would lead it, and it is not it is not beyond all possibility that this could be literal. Um, knowing the valley for what it is, knowing the scope of the valley, various overflow toward Jerusalem, and we'll see how that plays out with the Lord's return uh, and um, the valley of Jehoshaphat that's found in prophecy and that speaks of the day of judgment for the unbelieving world. So either way, I'll let you make up your own mind on that for now. And, well, you always make up your own mind anyway, but I, 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 won't, I won't give you any more than suggestions. Let me put it that way. The kings will gather to this valley and then at some point, Within this scene, there will be a battle. As I mentioned, perhaps it begins with a battle against one another for power, but it will certainly end with the Lord finishing it. We'll talk about that in Revelation 19. All this doesn't happen in the text just yet, though, and that's why we're not covering it today. We talk about them being gathered together. We talk about the river drying up. But we find instead of the Lord's direct return at the sixth vial, we have one more vial left, right? So these, these kings are gathering. The people are gathering to this valley, the valley of Jezreel, Har-Megedo, Har-Megedon. And perhaps while they are there, this seventh vial is poured out. The Bible says, The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. An interesting parallel, perhaps, to what we find on the cross. As Jesus cries out, it is finished. And now a cry from the temple, from the throne, says, it is done. He had judged Christ for our sins and it was finished. And now those who have rejected that offer of salvation, those who have shaken their fist at God, those who have blasphemed his name unto them, what, what about them? What about those who have rejected Christ? Well, now that is done. It is done. Seventh angel pours out his vial in the air. The cry goes out. It is done. The work is complete. The judgment has been meted out. It's time for the son to return and to start what he had, uh, to finish what he had started. And the Bible says this in regard to the seventh vial, verses 18 through 21. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, of the hail, and for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So upon the earth sounds voices. Perhaps these voices are the battle happening in the valley of Jezreel. 
If we, if we do believe that there was a battle that, was, that began to take place before the Lord returned, maybe those are the voices being heard, the voices of the battle as it's engaged in the valley of Jezreel. Um, who knows? There will be thunder. There will be lightning. There will be a storm. Uh, it conjures up images from the Old Testament again in the valley of Jezreel about the Lord's deliverance in the days of Deborah and Barak. If you hear the song of Deborah and Barak, it speaks of lightning and thunder. And so the enemies of Israel, their chariots get stuck in the mud and they cannot fight because of the lightning and the thunder and the rain that poured into the valley of Jezreel at that time. And they were actually given victory because of this, this, this storm that arose. And perhaps there are some allusions to a very similar event happening here. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's a storm. And the Bible says there's a great earthquake. Now, we have seen a lot of earthquakes in this book. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, there was an earthquake during the sixth seal, which the Bible says moved islands and changed topography. Uh, islands were moved out of their place. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, there was an earthquake as well during the seventh seal. In Revelation 11, verse 13, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem during the sixth trumpet. That would be the second woe. After the ascension of the two witnesses, where the Bible says 7,000 men died, and uh, they're killed by that, that earthquake in Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, there's another earthquake associated with the seventh trumpet, the third woe. But this earthquake, the Bible says, is the greatest earthquake which the earth has ever seen. Right? So we talk about an earthquake that moves islands out of its place. We talk about earthquakes that cause cities to crumble. And this earthquake, the Bible says, the great city is divided into three parts. What is the great city? Most likely Jerusalem is, is the great city. And this might correspond to when the Lord returns and the Mount of Olives splits in two and God's people run through it as Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives. This might correspond to that. Again, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Entire cities fell as the earthquake. The Bible speaks of Babylon, uh, Mystery Babylon, one of these cities requited by God for its evils. Again, we'll talk about that over the next several weeks. Falling. Islands are no longer just moved. But the Bible says every island flees away. I mean, they're gone. Mountains are not found. Entire, not just mountains, entire, imagine entire mountain ranges falling. I grew up in Colorado, right? So I always knew which way west was. You just look for the mountains. And you always know, uh, you get up here, I don't know what way west is anymore uh, because I don't have mountains to, to, be, to be my guide. But we always look toward the mountains. And you see this mountain range jutting up from the plains in just magnificent fashion. Colorado is very flat. And then it's just big mountains, right? Just to imagine visually the idea of a great earthquake and, and the Bible says mountains are not found. To think of those grand mountains just collapsing under themselves as the earth is totally shifted off of its foundations. That's what's happening here. And upon the people, perhaps in the Jezreel Valley, perhaps fighting at this time, there's this storm. And the Bible says that hail begins to fall out of heaven. And during the storm, the hail is falling, weighing a talent. Depending on the particular weight of the time, generally speaking, the people that, that the historians that would say this is how much a talent weighed at the time of Roman dominance, at the time John was writing, somewhere between 50 to 75 pounds. So if you can imagine hailstones falling out of the sky that are some 50 to 75 pounds, 
this is going to be a tremendously catastrophic moment in, in earth history and, and indeed is the end of earth history as it stands. And with all of these terrible things happening, surely now the people figure it out, right? The Bible says, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. They continue to blaspheme God. And in this, once again, we find the deceit, the capacity of man unto self-deception is great. The hard hearts of the people of this world. We find the reality confirmed that the Bible speaks of, that unbelief is not a condition that rests upon lack of evidence. Unbelief is not a condition that rests upon lack of knowledge. Unbelief is a condition that rests upon the lack of a will to submit themselves to the true and holy God. Unbelief is a choice, just as belief is a choice, whereby people are the lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. This is the testimony of the Word of God. We read about it very clearly in Romans chapter 1, in fact, don't we? The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who hold, that word meaning suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that men don't know it, it's that they suppress it. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I skip to verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This description of the unbelieving world is one which has been the case since the beginning. The essence of unbelief is not lack of evidence. The essence of unbelief is not that God has gone out of his way to hide himself. Have you ever had someone ask you that? If God is real, why has he gone out of, the way, out of his way to hide himself from us? On the testimony of the word of God, this is absolutely not the case. Knowing the judgments of God, the judgments of God are no, not, it's not even just the reality of God, the Bible says, that, that, that the heavens declare. Of course, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. His eternal power and Godhead can be known by the things that are made. At the end of it all, the unbelieving world, knowing full well the judgment of God, 
knowing full well that these things are the judgment of God, knowing full well that those that reject God are worthy of death, they not only reject God anyway, but as it is today, so it will be then, they take pleasure in their rebellion. And their rebellion, as it leads others into rebellion, not only their own, but take pleasure in them that do such rebellious things. To this end, what we read at the end of the age, what we read in Revelation chapter 16, is not actually any different than any other generation except to the degree that this devilish spirit of rebellion and rejection of truth has encompassed the entire human race because the restrainer has been removed. We've already walked through an application this morning. We've gotten into application, but let's solidify it. I I do not, of course, I don't desire the the, the, the application to become repetitious. We've talked many, many times about the judgment of God, about what that means about the character of God. It's been a little while since we bubbled up to the surface what we saw in verse 15 today. That there is a day of reckoning, that justice demands it, and blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. This is the only application I'd like to leave you with today. We've spoken of it before. The Bible uses repetition in in important ways. But I won't belabor the point this morning. If you are not prepared in the spirit for the day of reckoning, first by having placed your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you have never come to the point in your life where you have identified that you are a sinner, that your sin has separated you from the true and living God, that God is holy, that he cannot abide sin, that on the day where the the fate of mankind, of individual, is determined on the day of judgment, God cannot simply say, well, you were pretty good, so I'm just going to let you in. God cannot work that way. God is just. God must be just. But if you also understand that that's why Jesus had to come, that Jesus was the perfect Son of God and the perfect Lamb of God, and that Jesus came and he died a sinner's death to pay for that sin, to do for you what you could not do for yourself, to take upon himself the wrath of God, this wrath that we're seeing poured out upon the unbelieving world. It was poured out on Jesus so that we might be made righteous. And that anybody who will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, not work for it, not earn it, not, uh, um, not buy it, not, uh, not through church attendance, not through uh, uh, faithfulness of my own works, but rather by grace through faith alone, those who accept by grace through faith alone the finished work of Christ will be saved. It's amazing. I was talking with someone not long ago, and they had um, been talking with me about their faith and we come to a point of as we've walked through the word of God where he said I realized something he said I I realized that for all of these years I knew about the, the finished work of Jesus Christ and I knew about his gift but because I felt so guilty about him about Jesus having to take my sacrifice I was never willing to accept it as if because Jesus' gift, I'm so unworthy of it, I'm not going to accept it because that would make me almost condone the fact that Jesus did this for me. Look, he's already done it. The work is already done. He already took your shame. He already took your guilt. He already took it. If you don't accept it, that's just pride at this point. 
Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Not just know that he's your Savior. Have you accepted his gift on your behalf? But the focus of my application today is for believers. That's who's being spoken here in verse 15 in many ways. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Blessed is the man that's looking for it, that's watching for it, that's ready for it. Blessed is the man who, knowing what is coming, positions himself for blessing rather than judgment. Each day we live presents us with a choice between two options. Either Jesus is Lord or I am Lord. Either Jesus is in charge or I'm in charge. The old child song goes, just two choices on the shelf. Oh, what would those choices be? Pleasing God or pleasing self? Oh, I would more like Jesus be. Let it not be enough for us simply to watch. Let us keep our garments. Let us not just stand. Let us strive for reward. Let us strive for blessing. Let us strive to be found in Christ on that day as vessels of honor in the kingdom of God. Let us echo the mindset of Paul when he wrote these words. And you can feel the angst. You can hear it in his voice as he writes this. Know ye not, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And everyone that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, Paul says, not as uh, uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul says there is a race that we are running and there's a prize at the end. And just because you're running the race doesn't mean you're going to receive a prize. Believer, just because one day you will stand in glory does not mean that all of your rewards are are by default. Rewards come to those who watch. Rewards come to those who keep their garments. Rewards come to those who run, who fight, not as uncertainly, not as those that beat the air, the idea is Paul saying, I don't, I'm not just doing this to do it. Look, righteousness, piety, obedience, religion, these things are not just for, ex- they're not just exercises. They're not just to make us good people. There's an object. There's an end. There's a reason. There's a reason why we keep our garments white. And it's not just so that we can look at other people and say, wow, look how white my garments are. As a matter of fact, that's not a reason at all. That's an anti-reason. The reason is because there's coming a day when this race will be done and there's rewards for those who watch. There's a reward for those who keep their garments white. Are your garments white? Are you staying clean? Are you doing right? Today we have read the goal. The day when judgment falls upon the unbelieving world, but those who are gods will not rest under said judgment. Those who are gods will be delivered from said judgment. And as we'll see in a few chapters, we who no doubt will be spared the torments of the 70th week will return with our Lord on that day when his victory will be complete. Is this not worth the riches of the world? If I gain the world but have not Jesus, the song says, were my life worth living for a day? Is it not worth the riches of the world that we might keep our garments pure? That we might not be ashamed before him at his coming? 
This was the exhortation of John himself, not in Revelation just yet, but in 1 John. And it is this verse upon which we will close today. John wrote this, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If the Lord were to come today, would you have confidence? Not be ashamed before him at his coming. I'm not just talking about salvation by grace through faith, although that's certainly a big part of it. I'm talking about the way that you have lived your Christian life, the manner in which you have positioned yourself. Are your garments white? Let us strive, not only alone, but also together, that we may be found in Christ in this way. Not that we as believers may avoid the day of judgment, for indeed, the division on this day will be a division of belief and unbelief alone. And for those of you that are in Christ, that's not for you. But let us labor that on the day of our salvation, we would not just rest in the assurances of God's mercy, but we would also rest in the confidence of God's rewards. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.